what a privilege we have to come and to worship you. For the highlight of our worship is the opening of your word. For we know that it is your revealed word to us and how you chose to have it written down so that we could study it from one generation to the next. And that given that way, it doesn't change. It's not like the game of telephones where when it goes on to the next, it sort of changes some. But it is steadfast and it is true. It is without error. It is something to where we can get to know who you are, not only on what you have told us, but how you have acted in the past. And so that when we look at our own lives and we look in, into the future, it gives us a confidence to know on how we are to live our faith. For we come to worship a living God who is at work in the lives of his people. And it is through our lives, Father, that the world can see that you are there because our actions, our attitudes, our demeanor points to the cross and what your son had done. For if it wasn't him dying in our place, where would we be? We would still be lost in our sins. And when the world looks at our lives and see how and why we are who we are, we can say, I know the answer to that because I was where you are and God changed me because he has granted me eternal life through his son. So speak to us, Spirit, this morning so that our time here can be pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. If you have your Bible this morning, please open it up to Genesis chapter 50. And we are at the last few scenes in the book of Genesis in which this track began probably right at the beginning of COVID. And it was a time in which I don't exactly know if the first message was to an empty audience and you had to watch, or if you came in thereafter, it's been a long track, even though it's aren't that many chapters. Uh, from chapters 37 through chapter 50, but we are here. And we've been looking at the life of Joseph, and we've been saying all the time in which we began this track that the story of the life of jo Joseph isn't really about Joseph. Joseph's life and his trials isn't directly related to giving us principles on how we are to live our lives under persecution so God can raise us up. It is a glimpse of the life of Jacob in which God has not only made promises through his forefathers, but also is showing that he is faithful, that he is providentially at work to fulfill those promises and to bring about the promised seed through the line of Judah. And so throughout Joseph's story, we've been sort of underlining and underscoring the aspect in which God is providentially and always at work in our lives. And so it is an aspect to where I needed to really be preaching this section to myself because I needed to know when we began this track about God's providence and to be reminded of that. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that this doctrine of God's providence is one of the most defining doctrines of the hour 
at the end of the 20th century. In the beginning of the 21st century, we need that all the more. Steve Lawson even recently said, there is no rational explanation of what is going on in the world except for and apart from the doctrine of the providence of God. To understand things and all of the trials in which we see in the evening news, we would go crazy if we did not have a firm understanding and foundation and trust in the providence of God. And so when we begin to think about the providence of God, we begin to think about, first of all, about God's sovereignty. And we'll look more at this next week, but God's sovereignty underscores the fact that God is totally under control of all things. He has plan A, and there's only plan A. There's no plan B, there's no plan C, there's only plan A, and he's been working that out from before the foundation of the world. And so God is at work in how God um, gets that decree into motion is through his providence. God's sovereignty is, um, is, is at work and his providence is in action. And so for us as the believer, the providence of God gives us comfort. For when dark times comes and difficult times comes, our hearts should be comforted to know that God is there and things are not a surprise to us. Maybe, you know, it's it's not a surprise to him, but it's a, things can be a, a surprise to us. It also gives us hope, because when disappointment comes, and it comes often, it seems like, it can give us hope that, all right, God knows better. And so we've been looking at that aspect of the workings of God in Joseph's life, and it's been thorough. It's been complete. And one of the reasons why I wanted to look at the providence of God through the life of Joseph is I firmly believe that there, are, there is going to be dark clouds of persecution coming over the horizon at the church. And these dark clouds may make the church feel overwhelmed, make them feel confused. But understanding God's providence can give us hope during dark times. It can give us com comfort. It can give us strength to persevere despite whatever circumstances we can find ourselves. And so when we rest upon God's providence, we can know that God is under control to whatever may happen. And we've seen through the life of Joseph since chapter 37, one trial, one hardship after another came upon Joseph. He was rejected by his brothers. At first they wanted to kill him, but then they threw him into a pit. Then they, he was sold into slavery, and then through exaltation at Potiphar's house led him to the accusation of rape by Potiphar's wife, to where he was thrown into prison, to where he was there for two years. Yet through the interpretation of the cupbearer's and a baker's dream, his reputation went forth as being the interpreter of dreams. And still, after being forgotten in prison, Pharaoh had a pair of dreams to where it needed an interpretation, and it was remembered that Joseph was the interpreter of dreams and interpreted those dreams to where he was then made prime minister of, of Egypt. 
And so we get to see that through Joseph's life, he did not understand the why behind it. Why was he going through such persecution? Why he was separated from his family? Why he had to endure all this false act, um, act, accusations excuse me, and um, different trials? But yet God was at work all the time because we saw that God was with him. And so he endured. He persevered. And the only trust that he had, because he was all by himself in his faith, was that God was with him. And that was his comfort. That was his hope. That was his strength. And yet through Joseph's hardships, there was a larger plan that God was accomplishing. Because all of those things were to be laid out into Joseph's life to help him prepare the nation of Egypt for seven years of severe famine. And so he had to bring about seven years and uh, multiply uh, through great, pro great prosperity all of the, uh, uh, the seed to prepare for those seven years. Because no matter how rich you were, you could buy all the food you would run out of money before the seven years would run out. And so they had the food. People had to come to them, and if you didn't, you would die. And so God was at work to help prepare Egypt for the famine. God was at work to lead his family to Egypt to where he, um, God brought about his entire family to stay within Egypt so they can survive the famine also that the promised line that would to come through the line of Judah would be preserved. And they would remain there in Egypt to become a great multitude of people. And so God has been at work, working through the trials in which Joseph had no idea of the why, but just that God was at work in his life, and he saw God's hand at work, no matter how difficult those trials were. And so we've been looking at Joseph's life to get a deeper understanding of God's working. And we come to the final scenes in Genesis chapter 50, in which it not only shows the need of, of God's people to have a clean heart of forgiveness within them, but God helps underscore the fact that he is good. He is at work. And, and, and we can trust in him. And so that's what we're going to be seeing within these, these, these aspects, to help underscore God's providence, to give us a deeper understanding. So if you don't come next week, you will miss part of, the important part of, looking at this one passage. But that's next week. But let's begin to see, beginning at verse 15, the passage that we have. Look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50. We find this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive. I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and 
their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your fathers. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I... For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This passage that we have here is found in the book of Genesis, which was written over 2,000 years ago, probably a more long line of 3,000 years. And we begin to find that um, it applies to us just as much as when Moses took the tradition and had written things down. For this issue in which we find Joseph's brothers is key and probably has been, in, in, um, we've seen it in each one of our own lives. Because we see in this one passage that Joseph's brothers have never dealt with the issues of their past. And we get to see the contrast because on Joseph's side, he has dealt with issues with his brothers. And so we have a contrast here of, God's people, one who has dealt with the issues of their past and one who has never dealt in what can take place within their lives. For we know Joseph, he, he basically, when he saw his brothers back in Genesis chapter 45, he had no ill will against them. He has already forgiven them go, going back to Genesis chapter 45. So when he sees his brother and they are re, uh, reunited, he underscores I'm glad to see you. Let me provide. Bring the family down. We're only halfway through the famine. Come live here. I will give you the best choice of land. But in the brother's side, all they saw was their sin and their guilt and all of the ill will that they had toward Joseph. Because essentially they were bullies against Joseph. They treated him cruelly. Their hearts were filled with hatred and jealousy and rage. And so because they never fully dealt with that to ask Joseph for forgiveness, it's been eaten, eating at them the entire time. And so let's begin to look at this first part of the passage by looking at the brother's inner turmoil. Look at the beginning part of verse 15 and we, we can begin to understand where they're at. And verse, uh, verse 15 begins with the brothers realizing that their father has died and they had a reality check of what next. And so verse 15 begins, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. And so they've been living 17 years since they've been reunited with Joseph in Egypt. And they begin to see that there is this turmoil that not just one of them had it, but all ten who had sinned against Joseph. 
Benjamin wasn't a part of it because Joseph loved Benjamin, and Benjamin wouldn't have done anything towards Joseph. And so these ten, they conspired against Joseph, and now their conscience inside them was beginning to scream that things were not right. They needed to get things right. So essentially, they had a guilty conscience, and it was haunting them. Since Joseph was 17 years old, so it's been 17 years, 17 years prior, that's when they lashed out against Joseph, and so the conscience has been guilty the entire time, and now it's just screaming at them that things are not right because their father was dead. And so look at the next part of the verse. It says, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us? Their father is dead. They begin to worry. And they begin to think, what if this was all a ploy? What if Joseph was trying to just appease our father and not lash out against us? What if his heart is actually full of animosity and full of hatred? The Hebrew word there, bears a grudge, is actually one word in the Hebrew. It means to oppose oneself or retain animosity against someone. What if Joseph is secretly despising us, waiting for our father to die, to get even, to retaliate, to have payback? And so this is what was in their mind. And the reason why they would even think this way is because they used to think this way. They would have evil thoughts. They had a heart of jealousy. They had a heart of hatred. They had a heart of animosity. So they were thinking just as long as their father was alive, Joseph wouldn't lash out. But now that he was dead, that heavy weight, that overwhelming weight of guilt, was bothering them, that their father had had a restraint, but now that was gone. And so they had a feeling it was now payback on Joseph's side. Look at the next part of the verse. It says, and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did. That's a powerful uh, uh, sentence there. The word the word wrong there is a little soft in the English. The Hebrew word means evil or misery or distress. And so what if Joseph pays us back for all the evil, for all the misery, for all the distress that we have done to him? And so the point is this was no uh, minor discomfort that we laid on him. These were evil actions which brought about misery. Misery in his heart, and then misery put upon him through his circumstances. And so they have a fear that Joseph would no longer have any kind of restraint and lash out. Though they didn't have, a, have a law, the law at that time, they may have understood the fact of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If he did such things, he, Joseph would be all right to lash out for the evil that was committed upon him. And so they're terrified. And they're saying, what if Joseph is holding a grudge all of this time? For now, the father was dead. He has the motivation to get even. 
He has the ability. He's prime minister of Egypt to do whatever severe punishment that he chooses to be done on them. And though the text doesn't say it, they were terrified because of that. So what's going on here? Why are they so fearful? I believe that we clearly see that Joseph's brothers, they have never asked Joseph to forgive them for what they had done. And so they have this guilty conscience about it. And the conscience is just an internal mechanism that God has given to every person to help us judge what is right and what is wrong. Though we can spew the conscience through us justifying away our sin, the conscience is there when we do something right, that's good. When we do something wrong, it screams inside that there is something that is wrong. It's God-given. We all have it. And so they're feeling guilty. And the only way to get rid of the guilt is that God has given us the ability to ask a person for their forgiveness. And so they've never confessed their sins to Joseph. And so they fear it's payback time. And they fear for their lives that Joseph will make what was wrong right. And so that's exactly what Joseph tells his brothers down in verse uh, 20. He says, and as for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph even, saw, even recognized they were evil things. They just weren't, you know, just slightly bad. They were evil things against me. So he recognized the sin that they have done. And so it begins to help underscore the fact that unconfessed sin in the life of a believer can be a haunting thing. We cannot be harboring things that were done to, to somebody without making things right. David said in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, he said this about the sin that he committed because he didn't make it right. He said, and acknowledge it, he said, when I kept silent about my sin, the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, my body wasted away. Could have been as long as, as a year has gone by at this point. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fear of, of the heat of summer. Look at those words. My body wasted away, groaning all the day. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away like the heat of the summer. There was no relief even at night. It was the same. So that is a guilty conscience. That is a haunting conscience. And so in verses 16 and 17, they try to do something about it. And here we see the brothers plea to Joseph. Look how this, um, look how this begins to unfold. At the beginning of verse 16, we have, so they sent a message to Joseph. It's interesting. They didn't go to Joseph right off to see him face to face. It's, it, it doesn't say that. They didn't want that. So what do they do? They send him a letter. That's, that's better. If we see him, well, 
you may not see us again. You know, they don't know. They, they send them a letter. It can't be okay. And in this message, they begin to recount what their father had told them and confess what they have done to Joseph and plead to him. So they sent Joseph a message in the next part of the verse saying, your father. Just want to stop it right there before we move on. They don't say our father. They say your father. That's an indication of how much the separation of their relationship between them, the ten brothers, and Joseph had become. It just wasn't, you know, uh, just a pothole. It was a chasm. It was great. They felt that, Joseph, that they were there and Joseph was way down in the next state. And so it's because the ten had never made it right what needed to be done. Because when sin happens, when you do something wrong to another person, it breaks down the relationship. And only one thing can help mend those fences is that confessing one's sin. Because if you don't, there, there can never be any real depth within the relationship. And so they send a message to Joseph saying, your father, and the next part, your father, he charges them. Your father charged. That means to give orders, to command. Somehow before Jacob died, he summoned the ten brothers together and tells the ten brothers, you need to get this right. And he commands them. This is what you have to do. It's not an option. If you ever want to make it right, you need to do this. And he charged to them before he died, saying... Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive. And so it clearly shows us now that their relationship to Joseph was never addressed before. Back in chapter 45, when Joseph acknowledges himself, they, they weren't fully sure on what was taking place. And 17 years later, they never asked for forgiveness. They saw Joseph's kindness. They saw Joseph provide, but they never stepped forward to ask for forgiveness. Thus, the confusion from their side, thinking that now Joseph may retaliate. And so their conscience is nagging them, and now it explodes upon them when his father died. That word forgive means to lift a heavy load. And that's what happens with one asks another person for forgiveness. That heavy load that we are bearing can be lifted. And forgiveness is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Because one can say, I'm sorry, but what does that mean? True forgiveness is saying the why one is sorry on what has taken place. It involves confessing that you have sins against them. And so Jacob tells them at some point in the past, please forgive, which implies them to humble oneself. Because you have to humble oneself to go before someone to ask for their forgiveness, that they have wronged them. And he goes on to the next aspect of the verse, I beg you, not only is it command, I implore you, this is what you have to do. 
So reconciliation will never mend, will never take place unless forgiveness takes place. I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sins, for they did you wrong. So the brothers did do Joseph wrong. And it's interesting, because for in, the, in this one aspect of the verse, we find three words for their actions that they need to express. We find the word transgressions there. That means rebellion or a crime against God. The word sin there means a violation of what is right and what is proper. And then we have the word wrong there, which is the same word as we saw before, which is evil. And Jacob is telling his sons they must go to ask for forgiveness because they have transgressed against Joseph and God. They have sinned against Joseph and God, and they have committed evil against Joseph and God. That's us. That's more than just saying, I'm sorry. So the next part of the verse is, now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wants to make things right. And he tells them, you must humble yourself as if you were a slave, that's the word servant there, and ask for forgiveness and beg for forgiveness from Joseph. Jacob did not want his sons to have any kind of hostility or friction between them. And Jacob tells them that you need to have forgiveness. It's almost like a parent. Parents parenting their, their kids, and uh, little, little Johnny Joe does something wrong, and little Johnny Joe comes up, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And parent, parents would naturally go, what are you sorry for? Sorry for what? Sorry for hitting the plant and you knocking over and you smashed. There has to be more than just, I'm sorry. And we find here, what are you sorry for? And in Joseph's brother's situation, they transgressed. They sinned. And they did evil to Joseph. Some of the hardest words that one can ever say is not only the phrase, I love you, because that can come out like, oh, I love you. But it's the, also the word, I'm sorry. That's hard. That's something that doesn't come natural. Whether or not it's with another person, with a parent, even with a spouse, it's hard to say, I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? And so it's putting into words what, what you have done. And it puts on display your true actions. And it also puts on display that God is a God who forgives. And we begin to understand what true forgiveness is all about. And only then can the relationship start to be mended. And so they've committed an evil atrocity against Joseph and against their God, and they need to come clean and ask for forgiveness. There are many, maybe you are one here today, who struggle with that aspect of unresolved sin that you have with someone, that you have wronged someone in your past. You need to go and to get forgiveness with them. You need to humble yourself to ask for forgiveness. 
or your conscience will not give you rest until you have dealt with that. We even see this principle in the New Testament. In James chapter 5, and verse 16, it begins by saying, confess your sins to one another. There's that aspect that you have to go and confess. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? That clears up your side. may not necessarily clear up their side, or they still may be holding a grudge, but you've done what you can on your side to ask for forgiveness. And so when someone sins against someone else, you're to go to them and and to confess your sin to them and ask for forgiveness. But the passage doesn't stop there because in verses, uh, the last part of verse 17 through verse 21, we see Joseph's response toward his brothers. The end part of verse um, 17 begins by saying, Joseph wept. Again, we begin to see Joseph's emotional response that he has for the turmoil that had taken place. Not only did he weep back back in Genesis chapter 45 during the reunion that he had with his brothers, but he weeps here because as this Uh, As verse um, 17 and 18 begins to unfold, the text is going to imply that they sent a letter and the brothers are getting together with Joseph, that they're now together, and it also implies that they did ask for forgiveness. And so when he sees his brother, he weeps in front of them. The Hebrew word there, to weep, means to weep with grief, to cry with grief. It's an open expression of Joseph's emotional response to hearing the brothers' situation in which they find themselves. Why does Joseph weep here? Because I believe that um, Joseph feels the heaviness and the struggle that they've been putting up with for all those years, that there's been a tension in the relationship. And so he weeps for the pain of his brothers that they have been going through. And he realizes that it's all due to their unconfessed sins because it was never dealt with. And he weeps for them. It just underscores to me the need, especially being a man, that maybe sometimes I don't weep enough, especially when when it comes to sin and someone else's sin. And so weeping is not something that is unmanly. Even our Lord wept numerous times. I think the, for me, the one that stands out is found in Luke chapter 19, a week before Jesus goes to the cross. He's outside Jerusalem, seeing Jerusalem in the horizon, and he weeps over Jerusalem, knowing that in a short period of time, Jerusalem would be wiped off the map, destroyed, leveled, and he weeps for Jerusalem. And that's the same picture that we have here. And so it's been pretty obvious that Joseph has forgiven his brothers. It wasn't an issue on his side. It wasn't an issue back in chapter 45. It was gone. He was dealt with on his side. The issue was with his brothers. They never asked him forgiveness. And so Joseph wasn't harboring a grudge. And so Joseph's side was fine. And so now we get to see 
forgiveness from Joseph's side to Martha. Though we looked at it back in chapter 45, I just want to bring up that Joseph forgives his brother. There's no burden there. But yet at the same time, there may be someone here who still feels the heaviness and the hurt from being bullied by someone, from having mistreatment taking place upon them, for being misunderstood, and then the situation just exploded. Between a family member, spouse, between colleagues at work, we are the one who are the recipients of mistreatment, of abuse. Evil was done to us. Joseph had the ability to forgive because his faith and trust was in God. And it's interesting because you'd be surprised how much counseling um, a pastor or a counselor can do where it centers around people struggling with just this very fact that they need to forgive because they're, they feel the weight and the hurt and the pain for being mistreated by someone else from their past. And it's also sad, just I want to add one thing, this can happen within the church to where people within the church are having issues with it and they don't want to give it up. But when the world looks at the church, they expect to see the church filled with essentially people who love one another, people who know the truth, people who are kind to others, people who encourage, they go the extra mile, people who come alongside those who are, who are hurting, people who forgive. But you go to many churches, that's far from it. People in the church, when the world comes to visit, see a church that can be fractured, embittered, holding grudges between one another, being cold, just being unforgiving. They come to church, they sit, they sulk, and they sour in the back row. Not that the back row is bad. That's what they do. There are no kind words of encouragement. There's no edification, just complaints of what the church had done to them, what a pastor had done to them in the past. go. Let Christ be the one to bear that burden. Don't hold that against them. Then The church is not a perfect place. I will let you down at some point. I'm asking your forgiveness now. It will happen. And so we need to be people to forgive. And so Joseph didn't have a problem with forgiveness against the harsh harshness against the evil, against the transgression, against the misery that was done to him. The issue was on the brother's side. They needed to ask for forgiveness for mistreating Joseph. And so imagine a church who can be that way, to be givers of forgiveness and recipients of forgiveness. Because that is what we're called to do. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 32. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God has in Christ has forgiven you. Why are we to forgive? If God could forgive you for your sins, you can forgive others when they do you wrong. He did. Because God, by nature, is a God who forgives. In Psalm 86 and verse 5, it says, For you, Lord, are good, ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And so if God forgave us with an immeasurable debt that we could not pay, saving us from the horrors of hell, we should be able to forgive others. Because even while the most evil act in human history was being committed, Jesus was still able to cry out in Luke 17 and verse 3 while he was dying on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. I like this phrase from Alistair Bed. He says, the standard of our forgiveness is the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ's forgiveness, which was total, complete, no strings attached forgiveness. It had nothing to do with whether we deserved it or not. And so we're to show this Christ-like love, this Christ-like forgiveness to others. And so our story goes on in verse 18. The brothers are there in front of Joseph. In verse 18, we find, Then his brothers also came, fell down before him, and said, Behold, we are your servants. And so they are there. They're in person. They're humbling themselves and saying, Behold, we are your slaves. I'm going to give you a Tim paraphrase there. They would say that if they were slime, they would be the slime under the slug as he gets around. That's how low they were humbling themselves. We're your slaves. They fell down before him to acknowledge to him. And so true forgiveness takes place between people. And it gen generally generates great emotion as we see here. Not only with Joseph weeping, but also through his brothers. So in verses 19 through 21, we see Joseph's godly response to his brothers. Joseph's response is based on his understanding of who God is and how he has worked through his providence and how he's able to forgive. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? So he tries to calm their fears. Literally, do not be afraid means fear not. Remove any fear that you may have is, is what he is saying. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to go after your head. And so he says, do not fear twice. Here and also in verse 21 to reassure them. This is not what I am going to do. And once again, it, it implies Joseph has forgiven them. It wasn't an issue. Not one bit. 
He had issue to hang, that, that hold on to a grudge. But it, it wasn't there. Why? And we're about to see that. It's because what God has done to him and his understanding of who God is and the providence in what God was trying to bring about through his people. He says, aren't I in the place where God has placed me? He's saying, I'm in God's place. I'm in exactly where God wants me to be. God used your evil actions and sin towards me and placed me where he wanted me to be. God allowed that sin, made it a part of his eternal decree to bring about his eternal plan for his people. And so it shows that God has a larger plan that was in motion. And his plan was to send him into slavery. And he used the sins of the brothers to accomplish that. Go back to chapter 45 for, for a moment. And we see this same aspect that he's going back to. How could Joseph forgive? How can he act this way? It's because of his theology, his understanding of God. He was trusting in the sovereignty and providence of God, and we begin to see this in Genesis chapter 45. Look at verse 5, if you would. It says, now, do not grieve. So he just said who he was. Don't be scared. Don't grieve or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's acknowledging the, the severity of his sin. You sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's still five to go, in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And then it goes on to explain more, more of that, but I just want to stop there. And so it wasn't you who sent me here, but God used your sin, and it was God who placed me here because there was a larger picture going on than you just trying to get rid of me. And so God's plan was to save his people. There was a famine coming. coming. He needed to provide for them so they wouldn't perish and starve. But more importantly, so that the promised line that would one day come through the line of the tribe of Judah would be protected so that Messiah would come. So God was fulfilling the promises that he had made. There was a master plan. And he understand that God was there all the time. So go back to chapter 50 for a moment. And I want you to look at verse 20. So he had the ability to forgive because of his theology, his understanding of God. And he goes on to say, as, as for you, you meant evil against me. That word meant there means to carefully plan out, to calculate something. Your plan that you had was not only premeditated, but it was carefully planned out. And so that evil was brought about to inflict misery upon, Ju uh, upon Joseph. But the next part of verse 20, but God meant it for good. We're going to come back to this one uh, verse uh, next, next week. But God, God meant it for good. God took your evil plan, your carefully calculated plan, and he turned it into his good. He's 
the mastermind for all plans. And that sounds exactly what Paul says, as we know in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. A verse that you know. That we all know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that God's ways are above our ways. And we may not understand the hardships and trials that we go through. But there's one fact that we can cling to. God's in control. He's good. And he's working out his plan for his glory. And so look at the end part of verse 20. We find that it results in something. In order to, resulting in, about this present result, to preserve many people alive. And so that was God's plan that he had. And he goes back to the theology. The reason why God did all of that was because of God. So don't harbor any fear that I'm going to retaliate. I've forgiven you. Accept my forgiveness. Have that burden come off your shoulders. Because God was the one who took our sins and would bear our sins. And that's something that a lot of believers need to cling to. Because for some of us, we may look at our past and say and feel, for what I have done in my past, I feel like I could never be forgiven by God. And we just feel that way. When something bad happens, our thoughts go back to that one time of those series of events. But as what the psalmist says in Psalm 103 and verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Your sins have been completely forgiven. You don't have to bear the heavy burden of what you have done in the past any longer. And so God has been at work. He is there working out his plans through the to the evil that was done to him by his brother. That's God's providence. He permits evil to happen, but it is for his glory. And that's a great truth for, to cling to. Because God used the betrayal of Judas for his own good and your good. God used the trials against Jesus by Israel's religious leaders and Pontius Pilate for his good. When the crowd chose Barabbas over Jesus, it was for God's good and our good. When the crowd shouted, crucify him, crucify him, it was for God's good and your good. God used the stoning of Stephen for your good. Because it was through that event, it brought about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. God used the evil of the persecution of the early church to disperse the church, to send the church out into the world, to bring the gospel to wherever they went. And so God uses and permits evil to bring about his own good. Now look at verse 21. He shows that he has forgiven by reiterating 
So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What a tremendous passage. Because each one of us have been hurt, has been bullied in the past, has something bad has happened to us, and it's easy to carry a grudge. Or maybe you were one of them bullies who bullied someone, who mistreated someone, did evil against someone in a great way. You need to go to God. But you can't fully understand God's forgiveness and get true forgiveness unless you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's where forgiveness comes. To understand the forgiveness that God gives the sinner, you have to see your sin and cry out to him for forgiveness. To repent from your sin, because Christ paid for your sin upon the cross. And it was total. It, it was complete. And so we have two groups of people. Those needing to ask for forgiveness, and if you're still harboring ill um, sadness in your heart, you need to give that and leave it at the foot of, of the cross. For we don't know how our lives are going to be turning out. Bad things happen to us all the time. But the one thing that we do know is the things that do happen are for God's glory and our good. Sometimes that's all the answers we have in counseling. I don't know. Why that happened? I don't know. During this past week, I felt overwhelmed. All I could say, thank, all, all I could do is just thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord. And I, I must have said it a hundred times because I couldn't say anything else. Thank you, Lord. Because that's how overwhelmed I felt. And so God's providence has been at work through chapter 7 through chapter 50. But it's interesting because as we're going to see next time, I don't think we fully understand the providence of God at work. We know the bits and pieces of it, but we don't fully understand. You've probably never heard of the name of DJ Matson, but he is someone who has re recently moved me greatly. He was born in 1957, and when he was 16, he asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. DJ was a man who came to faith, loved the word of God, and loved serving the Savior. He met his wife, Judy, while attending college, and they eventually got married after he graduated. He got a job as a, as a chemist and would go on to have a very successful career. Yet deep inside, he yearned to teach the word of God, but he felt inadequate to do it. One day someone gave him the MacArthur Study Bible, which would open his eyes to understanding the scriptures, which we can and can. His favorite verse was Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so his love for the word exploded when he returned from a short-term missions trip from uh, Myanmar in the summer of 2019 where there DJ preached his first expository sermon with the help of two masters of alumni. He got to the place in his career where he wanted to retire and was beginning to wonder what next. He was in his 60s, what next? He felt a yearning to teach the word of God to others. 
So he moved him and his wife to California and started attending Grace Community Church. He wound up asking Masters University if he could help in, in any way in the science department, which led him to a teaching position. And yet he still felt the yearning to teach God's word. So he enrolled in a seminary in 2019. And in three years, he graduated. So this past May, not May of 2022, he graduated. And so the song, uh, Pomp and Circumstance, is played, and it filled the air of Grace Community Church. And after the ceremony took place at the graduation, it was time for the graduates to come forward. And when it was his turn, he walked upon the stage to get his degree. He, he first shook Dr. Uh, John MacArthur's hand, and then he shook uh, uh, Nathan Boosness's hand, where he received uh, the red hood on his shoulders. And then his final stop was uh, Abner Chow, the president of the seminary, shook his hand and moved the tassel from the right side to the left, thus indicating his graduating, and was told by Abner Chow, well done. High moment for him to be a graduate of the seminary. Indeed, they turned and faced the audience and began to go down the stairs. When he got to the bottom of the stairs, he stopped and collapsed to the floor. There he entered into glory to meet his Savior, where then he saw the Lord face to face and heard him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Why would God do that to him and his wife? The only answer I have, the providence of God. If his story perplexes you on the why, you don't understand the providence of God, and you need to be here next week. Because we're going to look at God's providence. Let's pray. Father, so much more could be said. What we got next week? Well, the coach call, calls my number. And so as we begin to prepare our hearts for the table, the table is a celebration of what our Lord has done for us for dying upon the cross. For before he left, he commanded us to remember because we have a tendency to forget. And so these are mere symbols of what he has done for us. One, for the breaking of his body as the body was bruised and broken for us, but also for the blood that needed to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, Father, we ask that our hearts are prepared, that we can come and to partake and to have the joy of celebration that comes with remembering of what our Lord has done for us. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.